The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who have, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, my guest is John Hansen, an aeronautical engineer and a recreational pilot. I went and visited him at his home hangar near Te Aramutu in the Waikato. This interview was primarily done for an article in Sport Fly magazine, which I am editing these days. But there's a lot more story to tell, and we thought an extended version on the Wings Over New Zealand show was a good idea. So here's the interview. I'm sitting in the hangar at, what would you call this area here? Um, well, it's out at, um, on Budden Road, which is a call-up point, um, just out of a little place called Pokeroo. Pokeroo, okay. I'm sitting in a hangar at Pokeroo on Budden Road with John Hanson. Hi, John. Hi. Um, you've got quite a collection here of uh, interesting aviation memorabilia and, and aeroplanes in your hangar. Um, can you tell me how this all started? How did you first get into aviation? Okay, uh, I was um, brought up in a little town called uh, Rangiro, 
just near, we weren't far from the Rangiro airfield and of course um, I had a brother that was eight years older than me and he was um, mad on aircraft and of course uh, at a very early age uh, we um, used to hang around the airports. Okay. So my brother took me out to the airports, see all the old, um, those days we had the spraying tiger moths and things that were operating out at Rangiro. And also used to pop out um, to Harewood, where all the deep freeze Globemasters and uh, the American um, base was. Yeah. And of course, in those days, you could um, you just say to the Americans, "Can we go up and have a look?" And they just point the way up, and you'd hop in the cockpit and have a great play around. They didn't didn't worry them. Wow. So it sort of started from there. And of course, um, I had an uncle that was um, lived out of a place called Swananoa, just out of um, sort of between Cust and Fernside, and we were towards um, the Waimak River. And uh, he had bought three Anson bombers um, after the war, right. trainers. Yep. So they cut the wings off those to bring them across the Waimak um, Bridge, and uh, they were placed out in the paddock. Um, uh, just near his front gate. So as kids, when my parents used to go and visit him, um, of course us boys used to hop out of the car and um, while they drove down 200 metres down the end of the driveway and visited the, um, the uncle. So we had a great time playing in these little old aeroplanes. Did you realise one of those Ansons is the one at uh, Wigwood? Um, no, I didn't. I knew that he, I knew that he, he told me, he, when he had them at there, at his paddock, um, one was completely dismantled. Everything you looked around his place had a bit of Anson sitting around. Um, my understanding, the props were overhauled and the engines were good engines when he first got them. Okay. Right? Um, <clears throat> he sold one of the engines and the guy's going to make a helicopter. I reckon he's going to make a helicopter out of it. Yeah. From what I understood, and he brought it back because he said he started up and about sucked all the dust off his paddock. Uh, and, and so, um, so anyway, he was he was um, he was telling me also that um, he reckons those Ensigns brought down a Harvard because a Harvard um, they used to use it for um, training for strafing across his oh, paddocks right. when they were training, you know, because not long after the war. And he said there was a collision. I think someone got killed. I'm not too sure about the details, how much or what the story was. Um, but he said he didn't quite get the tail wheel for his wheelbarrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was a um, not a good situation. But um, he was telling me that he sold one of the airframes. He was upset because he sold one of the airframes. Went up to Motat, and he reckons they cut it up to transport it. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Uh, it's now with Donald Sabrisky. Yeah. Who's actually working on putting it back together right now? Ah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Well, when I was about six, I used to play on those. Right. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and that's where part of the love of, um, you know, flying um, was, you know, imaginations went wild, um, sitting in these things swinging, because there was, um, one of them is intact, pretty well intact, and the others, um, the first one had been chopped about quite a bit. Right. Yeah. So, um, what was your uncle's name? 
Uh, Wilbur Dodge. So you've mentioned your brother a few times. What was your brother's name? Mel Hanson. Yeah, no, he he passed on. Um, he got out. He he didn't follow up the aviation side in the end. He ended up with a dray laying business, but always had his love for flying. My brother um, he decided to um, get a job with aerial sailing, loader driving, and of course at 12 years of age, um, I had the opportunity to. Um, first trip I ever did in an aeroplane, or first ride I ever had in an aeroplane, um, was in a Cessna um, 180 with a hopper on it and um, with a guy by the name of Ken Eden who worked for Aerial Sewing. So uh, it was a sort of an overcast Sunday morning and uh, we set off um, up the Rakaia Gorge and we landed on a one-way road at Mount Elgida Station. We um, actually had to circle around uh, for um, about five or ten minutes while the um, rabbit board got their little Fergie tractor out with a grader blade to take the snow off the road. So <laughs> my first, first landing um, was on a road okay. um, on a um, station. So that's that's sort of where it started, that side of it, and then it moved on to uh, when my brother would go out to work, um, I would um, quite often go with him in the Pawnees, yeah. and they had a few Pawnees um, based at Rangiroa, I think they had eight or ten Pawnees between air work and aerial sewing. Wow. So uh, we weren't, weren't all based out of Rangiroa, but um, they were scattered around, so at that point I decided that um, I would like to um, go flying and um, my brother was already flying and he already had his license and uh, of course to get a job is either flying, thought about engineering but then I thought no I'll go flying and uh, it had to be 18 to get a um, heavy trade license to drive a loader yep. as um, if you wanted to work for Pete Rowley you had to do two years loading before you could go flying. Yeah. You didn't, he wouldn't let you. And in that time, you could do your license and then he would send you up to Wanganui School and you would get some training. So I did all sorts of jobs to fill in to make good money to um, save up for my um, pilot's license. And uh, I started uh, with Ariel saying when I was 18, yeah. got my heavy trade. As soon as I got my heavy trade, I uh, started with them and uh, I couldn't actually get a job with them at the time because they were full up and there was a waiting list of people to get in as loader drivers. So I travelled from, um, at that stage we were living in Te Aumuru with my parents because they shifted to the North Island. So I ended up um, travelling down to the South Island with no job and asking if I could uh, do some work um, for aerial sailing, loader driving, or learn about loader driving um, for nothing. Okay. Had a bit of time to fill in. Yeah. So I had a week of that, and uh, then they said what I'd like to fill in is one of their um, pilots um, was going over to the west coast and they were short of a loader driver. So I filled in for another week, and then it was another week, and of course, we were working on Banks Peninsula and uh, they had a 
breakdown on one of the loaders with a blowing hose. So we hopped in the Pawnee and um, the pilot flew us through to Ambly where we met Pete Rowley was waiting with a hose on this paddock for us to replace on the loader. And he says, while you're here, you better go and uh, fill out this form. And I said, well, what's that? And he says, um, this is your tax form. I'm paying you. And he said, welcome to the company. Wow. So that's how I started off. Um, that's how I started off uh, and started doing my license at that stage as yeah. well. Uh, learned in uh, Piper Cubs and um, BPC, who is um, owned by the Christchurch Flying School, did my flight training in that and finished up um, with my uh, doing my flight test in a Cessna 150. So were you doing that in your, in your spare time out, outside of work as a loader driver? Yes. I was doing it in spare time as a loader driver and um, one thing people don't um, quite understand is that um, your flying wasn't just flying out of Rangier Airfield. I learnt at um, Harewood and it was very busy in those days. We had the deep freeze operating out of there. We had the international flights operating out of there and uh, domestic flights and also we had Harvard sometimes would come over from Wigram and do circuits on there and Canterbury Air Club was, had their whole fleet there. Right. So it was nothing to have, um, you know, 80 aircraft on a circuit. And um, so that's where my training was. And, and what people don't understand, what I was about to say is, what people don't understand is the fact that um, most of my flying, because calm weather, we were working with aerial top dressing and loading, and any windy days when you couldn't fly out in the, um, the mountains was uh, flying off um, Christchurch. So most of my flying was flying in crosswinds and uh, rough conditions. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so that's what happened there. Um, then I got involved with a um, rebuild and um, a couple of rebuilds and helped me out. And so I decided I would actually go to Australia, earn some decent money over there and do my um, finish my commercial off. Yeah. And um, the guy who had been loading for years um, contacted me and said, well, look, I hadn't, I'm just starting to do my commercial. And he said, look, we need you back here. Would you come back and work for us, you see? So um, he'd changed companies. And uh, so anyway, I was coming back to New Zealand anyway, so I came back and uh, I'd called into the North Island where my father was and my parents, uh, my father had um, ill health so he just said look he'd like us to be a little bit closer so what happened is um, I looked around jobs in New Zealand aerospace was just starting at that time right. and so and also I could have got a job with James Aviation or Airwork Christchurch. So I ended up um, looking around and um, talking to a couple of pilots and they just said, well look, um, why don't you head the engineering way if you're keen on that because you've got a natural flair for engineering and you can always do flying later. Yep. Um, there's no use having a heap of hours and having lost your license for a medical and you've got nothing else to fall back on. So. At that point, I decided um, I would um, um, 
go engineering. Okay. Um, so anyway, um, I, I got back, I was going back down to the South Island and um, I, I got to uh, New Zealand Aerospace and they were looking at just virtually grabbing, um, you know, as many people as they could get because they were going to build the first CD4 um, aircraft for the tight air force. So the, the company had just formed? Yeah, just formed. Out of merged uh, With air, air parts and air engine services. Right. So I ended up um, uh, going south and then coming back and pondering over all the twos and fours and that. And, and the egg pilot said to me, look, why don't you, the best thing you could do is go and work there the ag scene was taking a bit of a downturn at that, um, that stage and um, he says there's a job there for you but you're better to go that way he reckons and um, he said why don't you get yourself a um, aeroplane home built something like that and do you fly in that way okay so anyway uh, so as i joined aerospace i was just starting on the bd5 project sight unseen very quick decision because they had 27 kits and I was up to mine, I think, serial number 23. Um, they offered it at a reduced price at the time. So I um, put a deposit down for that and joined Aerospace and uh, was thrown right on the deep end from the day one because they needed to get the CD4s out and there was a uh, real quick learning curve. Um, they did a certain amount of um, training with us. So from there, um, very quickly sort of moved up into um, a lot of the tooling, building the tooling for the first aircraft. And um, <coughs> there was a, one of the guys had more experienced guys have been given a job on a jig for the engine mount and he has having trouble with it and they put him in a dark corner of the hangar and he just hated the job so i said i'll do it if you like so i went out and, and um sussed that out so they said right well um we've now got the canopy for you now so you can take that project on on sussing out the tooling okay. and um Canopy jettison system, rollover bar, front hoop and that. So they, um, I did that and of course I spent most of the time in the weld shop. So I, they um, said, well, we normally take on welders, but we'll teach you how to weld. We had about seven welders in there at this age. So we had some real good experience. So anyway, um, in the end, I just set my weld tests and I was away, I was in welding. So I did that for two years. Okay. And at the end of two years, I put in for a change. The company said, no, um, we won't shift you because you're too valuable where you are. So uh, the managing um, director of um, the plant two, um, he was leaving and he said, the last thing I'll do before I go is get a transfer. So I went on the assembly line with the old air parts guys and there was a lot of good knowledge there. Everyone was busy on the CD4s. I did a bit on the CD4s um, uh, on the assembly and then went on to the Fletchers. Yeah. And um, 
went pretty well straight up the end of the line and so used to do all the uh, ferry fits, all the final um, um, getting it ready for the um, long trips that the uh, Fletchers are doing um, to um, (coughs) Pakistan. Um, We're doing those and we're just finishing off the Iraqi ones at that stage. So uh, ended up um, running a team on the assembly line and um, so I did that for a few years and um, then I was um, offered a job at um, Wishart Helicopters. So I went to Wishart Helicopters for about 10 years. Where were they based? Oh, uh, Hamilton Airport. Okay. Um, Wishart Helicopters was um, brought out by um, and Tim Wallace and Graham Gosney. Um, they owned um, Alpine Helicopters, Worldwide Helicopters, yeah. and Wishart Helicopters, okay. which turned into the helicopter line. So that was right in the venison boom, so I was kept very busy there, um, built support equipment while I was there, and of course when the venison boom crashed, uh, we carried on for a while, the company, um, they were looking at selling uh, Wishart helicopters at the time, so Aerospace approached me to come back and build half a dozen canopies for the Thai Air Force, so I went back and did those, and uh, freelanced as an engineer. Right, we'll go back just to the end of the Wishart helicopters. Um, that became helicopter line. And of course they were looking at selling the, um, the business because uh, they weren't doing the venison any longer. And of course uh, they're having trouble to compete with the um, spray operators that wanted to operate from their backyards with their wives working to support them. Whereas the bigger companies, you had more overheads and they wanted to sort of move into the tourism industry. So they looked at doing their maintenance outside. So anyway, I went to Aerospace, built the six um, uh, canopies for them. And while I was at the um, plant two working on that, um, I got a phone call saying, well, I'd had ex- you, um, I've had experience on the um, Allison turbine and I'd had experience on the CD4s. So they wanted to know whether I was interested in coming and finishing off the CD4C, which they had the Allison um, um, turbine in, yep. or they were going to put the Allison turbine in. They had the Allison turbine alone, and of course they had a uh, damaged airframe that they got from the Air Force. So uh, I said, well, okay, I'll come back, and in one conditions I get a reasonably free rein on what we'll do because in the past you're always restricted um, on what you do, you know. Um, so anyway, I took up that, um, that position of running the um, project on the floor alongside, um, there was Murray McGregor that headed up the project and had John Kerr um, also working alongside him. And so, the idea was um, to do a um, turbine conversion 
for the Thai Air Force. They were looking at the Thai Air Force because they had the CD4s, they liked the CD4s and, and they thought it wouldn't be a good um, pick. So anyway, I was involved with the, um, to skip over it a bit, with the um, CD4C project. And then after that, I was involved with the CD4E project on running that and the movement, uh, moving of the wing, the repower of the engine, working alongside um, design office with Murray McGregor and uh, John again. And then um, the PD6 Cresco, the um, engine installation for Tower Co-op, I was involved with that. And uh, at that stage, um, being owned by uh, Australian um, Asta, uh, we were told we weren't going to build any more aircraft. So I was put on to the development and set up of the um, Angus Frigate Project um, Command Control Modules, uh, which was a uh, worse than building aircraft actually. <laughs> it was so complex. And um, working to such fine tolerances, it was very difficult because um, it wasn't as flexible and uh, very high standards on that. So I did that and so I finished up from there and I just worked as a freelance engineer working for anyone. So I did um, welding, um, worked on helicopters, uh, refurbishing, worked on fixed wings, worked on all sorts of things in New Zealand and overseas. And um, so it was like that for the, um, the last 20 years. Okay. But with the, regarding the home builds, <coughs> we'll, we'll go back to the beginning of aerospace with the <coughs> BD-5 Aerospace gave the contract to um, <clears throat> do all the structural testing of the BD-5, mainly because CIA was, um, didn't cost anything to have it done in New Zealand, whereas it cost a fortune in America to have the BD-5 um, built and tested in a um, facility. So it soon became apparent to me that there was lots of problems with the BD-5 because they hadn't sorted out the engine and I started reading a few articles on it, and as one guy said, um, uh, Jim Beatty would show his presentation, and it was like a screwdriver flying inside a wind tunnel. And it looked like the BD-5, the only um, payload it could carry is a pilot and a canary, and the canary would have to fly as well. So, that was the... That was the, um, where the BD-5 was at, and also a test pilot, which is very experienced. He um, had flown it, and he said it was a tricky plane to fly, and I looked at it and thought, well, not suitable for New Zealand conditions. Right. So I rang up Max Clear, and we had a discussion on the phone, and he said, well, why don't you go and get a little turbulent? You'll have a lot of fun in a wee turbulent. And I said, well, how much would you pay for a little turbulent? And he said $1,200 for 1,200cc and $1,600 for 1,600cc. So I set out to um, set out to look for a turbulent and went to the um, Hastings Fly-In. I forget which year it was now. But um, went to the Hastings Fly-In and looked at a few turbulents and they're all rough. And, uh, 
Maxim Day, none of that. You don't want one of those. So he said, I know where there's one sitting in the back of a um, hangar. So I went, I rang the guy and said, well, can I have a look at it? And he said, yep, um, come on over, had a look. And I said, it's for sale? And he said, no. So I said, well, if you would sell it, let me know. So a week later, he rang me up and he says, um, I've thought about it and it is for sale. And I said, well, how much? And he said, $1,800. So I thought about it and I thought, well, I don't mind paying $1,800 for one that I know that's good. Yeah. And I knew that was a really good one, good airframe. So that's how I ended up with a little turbine and um, I did a lot of flying in the turbine. So which uh, CC level did that have? It had the 1200 um, CC motor. Yeah. So I was working for aerospace at that time and um, I used to fly to work in the turbine. All right. Yeah, land at the front. And when I went across to um, the main assembly uh, factory, I used to um, land in front of James Aviation along there and um, taxi and work for the day. And then I used to actually take off on that strip. Wow. <laughs> I used to fly from Tekoi. Tekoi, I was out there when we had one hangar. So we had five turbulents out there at the time. Right. It was like a little Air Force. Well, it's come a long way since then. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you first meet Max then? Um, when I came to the North Island in the um, early 70s. First thing I did when I came to the North Island was I rang around to find who's who and what's what. So I heard about this guy at um, Tekoi and, and when I was up against um, 67, when my parents shifted up here, there was an article in a newspaper, this guy that was building a turbine. Right. And that was Max. Oh, right, okay. So I made contact with him when I got up to the North Island and, and Max told me where this turbine was and he said, I'll give you a hangarage so um, you can use my hangar. So I was there for years. So you're one of the original Tekoi gang? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and the um, you know the big nineteen eighty fly-in. Yes, I, um, I went to that. Yeah, I, I yeah, hardly well, remember it. I was only nine. <laughs> yeah, well, I did the. Um, I was on the committee for that, and um, <clears throat> I did all the static displays in a second hangar. Hidden light. Okay, yeah, yeah. Do you want me to grab a couple of photographs to look at while we're? Does that go? In or yeah, I'll just let it go. It's got twenty-five hours. So. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I just get some photos. I'll bet. <laughs> How many people were actually working at aerospace when you were there in the 70s? Was it a really big gang? About half. That's perfect. I remember that one. <laughs> seen that picture I got out there that, yeah. that one there Rob Trainer from Composites took that picture that's on out there they snuck up on me just some of the stuff when I was a kid used to yep 
Cherry's one. That would be the long-haired young twenties in those days, flying out of Dakota. Wow. Brian Shadwick's dragonfly there. So I went missing. That's not good. Yeah, AFB. That crashed about a minute after that. Um, these are just a little flying. I think that there is down Ashburton. These are just. I've just got a mixture of whatever. Yep. That's to Kauai in 1980. Oh yeah. You, you used to see those three always turn up at the various events, but yeah, Peter no. Dyer. Um, I don't know who the. The other one was someone else in Auckland, but there was Barry Thompson had the other one. Uh, yep. And I think one of them was owned for a while, the guy that owned the model shop in Kapakura. 1980 flying. It's big. Holy moly. See, I don't even really remember it. You would have been there. That I you yeah. went there. I don't really remember what's in the photos. That, that I, I mean, the photos pop up. I actually find that sometimes the places change so much you can't actually even work out the, the particular angles. There's a photo of me standing in front of that. That's that's mm. how I know that I was there. <laughs> EU, that's uh, that's one that Richard Hood had in there. For hookers, for hookers. I used to fly um, that over to Gisborne. We went to service the helicopters. And I think we were stacked to the roof up there. We had yeah. we come home with a whole frozen sheep in the back. <laughs> Some of the early stuff. That's Takoa in the early days. You see, when he had two hangers in. Yep. That's another early one there. Yep. That's the one the guy killed himself in. It's Tamura, I think it was. Now, what the heck's that? There's, there's a photo of that thing in Dad's collection. It's a KR1. Hmm. Um, they developed it into the KR2, which is quite common. That one last seen at Tokoroa, it was in um, uh, Murray Belfield's hangar. He was going to have a go and tidying it up. Mm. Um, so it's still around. Bill Macy, I think, was it. Yeah, it used thing. to use up all of the Kauai to get in because it used to get. I always reckon from the day I saw it fly that it was. It needed a. Forget about the retractables on it and just put a set of yeah, long the legs the on it. A lot of KR2s went to the spring legs on them and yeah. it improved them significantly. See that's that's in the seventies out of my tournament flying off um down Benmore way. Looks like Wanaka. It's Wanaka. That's the hill. Black's hill. Yeah. Muggets down this way, Wanaka Town. Yeah, we'll over here. Moth liner name. Oh that's just with the helicopters. We used to buy them in batches of eight or ten. Those days, and that's just some of the wrecks and things. Wanganui, when he worked down there, we used to service one down in Wanganui. We used to pick up many wrecks. These are just all out on the job, one on a tree. Out of the, most of the servicing was out on the field like that. Yeah. <coughs> down Queenstown Way, out the front here, in front of the house, they used to come in and Work on them. Okay. Yeah, these are the, the Tim Wallace's um, aeroplane. Oh yeah. He'd blown a hole. I've got a picture somewhere. Um, threw a rod completely out of it, so I had to do an engine change right down between Taipei and Wanganui. Wow. And being Tim, being lucky at the time, 
when the engine went, I think he rode my queen on board, they just, um, there was nowhere to go, it's just all tiger country, yeah. and there was one airstrip in the valley, and they actually undershot it and hit a ridge and bounced up onto the strip. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> He's used to have all of his knives. Yeah, he did. <laughs> There's Gisborne. That guy got killed. He got killed in the... Um, a lot of guys I knew. Oh, it's just outside my hangar. Elfin here. Flying under the bridge somewhere. <laughs> hangar being built here. There's a CD4 canopy. That's a jig, eh? Oh yeah. That was original old air tour jig which was modified. That was a world chopper. Those buckets, so in the early days of um, spreading, I designed the um, lot of support and buckets and spray gear because it was all work. Yeah. It's another one that didn't last, is it? Is that, that's not Ron Keats one, is it? Or is it no. Um, yeah, I think it is Ron Keats. Yeah, look, I, that's the first plane in 1969. I went to have a look at the because um, I was just going from single seaters and I went to look at one of the first um, Sorocco's in Christchurch being them. Okay. That was my used to when I was first. Oh, yeah. That's how the turbulence, see, that's flying yeah. down the South Island <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. That little aeroplane flew everywhere. Um, the highest I had is 11,500 feet. Wow. Yeah. Over to Kauai and. Um, one of the um, guys, the winter's day, almost clear one, and I just kept on climbing, kept on climbing, and um, he said all he could hear was this, <laughs> and he said he looked up and he couldn't see nothing, all of a sudden this wee speck was starting to come down. <laughs> and um, it took me 20 minutes to get down. To... That's the, yeah, that'd be the early days, that's in the 70s when I flew, that's when I had the 1200cc and that was flying down south. More wrecks, that's out of my turbulent again. That's, one of that. that's the world shop, working the world shop, that's out of my turbulent. Turbulent again, turbulent. Oh, these going back to the old era of saying days. Okay. <clears throat> That's up above on the strip and the CIE. And I thought I was great at 19. At 19, they I started off on a loader. And, um, they normally started off on a tractor, but my brother had been there years beforehand and he looked after his equipment, so they gave me a new loader at 19. That was my new loader. Right. It was worth nearly as much as the aircraft. Yeah, I've at the time. <laughs> And what he was doing there, um, Colin Bint, that is, he just um, swept a um, circle there and we sprinkled super on it because he couldn't turn the plane around. So you come in with both wheels locked up, and <laughs> as soon as you hit that, it would ground loop and you'd be oh. sitting right in front of the loader. <laughs> wow, tricks of the trade. That's the day I got the loader. Shiny. Used to, I used to do the white wheels on it. That was, uh, well, you can see in the background here were loaders that were just old loaders. They had old mm. loaders, but these were these were state of the art. Yeah. The snow. Yeah. Now that snow there, that was when it was new. That had the drum brakes on that weren't very effective, and it didn't have flaps. Right. So it came in like a freight train onto the airstrip, and um, my brother was loading that. And as he said, um, he couldn't stop. But um, there's a 
um, over the west coast couldn't stop on the strip coming up the strip. So um, he had to give it full power and he lifted one wing and dragged the other wing on the ground and cleared the bucket with the other other wing and then dropped off the side of the valley and then flew down the valley. <laughs> wow. That's when they first had the Fletchers down the south. Fletchers were no good down the south island. What is that? They, well, they fly knob to knob. The 300 Fletcher could fly from one knob to another knob and to get back up onto the airstrip or get up onto the sewing area, they had to circle around to get there. Pawnee used to be straight off the end of the strip. Okay. Used to operate three Pawnees off one strip on the government jobs. Wow. Yeah. Pawnee or the snow, the snow wasn't too bad. There's the snow, that's over Cape Falwyn. Um, used to go over the loading, we used to just have a great big heap of super. That was the day I'd, I remember that day I'd gone over, I didn't normally load that, I went over to the loading and there's where I used to sit back to front and the back behind the pilot so you were separated so going over he used to hold he'd, he'd wind the trim and i'd hold it a little bit and then if you just settle down and let it go and said, <laughs> <laughs> so he waited till i hopped in to go home and um you sat in the back facing the rear of the airplane there it is there that's looking out the window yeah facing the rear and i didn't even i just get my seat belts here to do it up and he gave a full throttle <laughs> No load on board, accelerated down the strip, and I was climbing my way back up the tube work to get back to my seat. <laughs> that was my first loader, as I um, used to hop on the opposite side of the bed for truck and they had a blade to blade the super. And these were all down the South Island, used to work in the snow quite a lot. There's a guy, Barry Cowley, he got killed in that plane that. Um, Broke up um, going across Cook Strait, that freighter. Oh, um, yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. He just started there as a loader driver in those days, he went flying Easter. Was that the um, Convoy? Yeah. Yeah. That's Banks Peninsula, there's a strip there. See the. Hmm. Banks Peninsula. Banks Peninsula was when they had have two years experience before you could fly there. It's one of the most dangerous trips out because um, you get northwest in the um, southern Alps and of course you get the strong sea breezes coming in around Canterbury. But you used to have Banks Peninsula, the sea breeze used to be coming in on the peninsula from the east and then you get your um, northwest that come up over the top. So you could still work there after you've been blown out and say up the Rakai Gorge. But um, they, they, when they're coming in, they had to come in with a strong tailwind. Oh, right. Yeah, right up their backside. Wow. Onto these uphill strips. And then um, as they got to the strip, they would then get the downdraft yeah. of the northwest breaking over the top. And, um, and, and then they had to put it down. So they're halfway down the strip with a uh, tailwind, another half of the uphill um, inland Kaikoura. Amazing. Yeah, you wouldn't put a pilot up there unless they had two years experience. Yeah. That's on the wheat belts, that's when we had the aphid plague in the 70s. Inland Kaikoura, Cheddar Valley. That there is um, sneaking up on another plane, I was in the crew seat of one of those. Yeah. But you've got to look at the perspective, I was taking it out of the picture there, so that that's where, the, where we're coming down, it probably 
you've got to look at the tree to get the right perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah, used to bury the bucket and have no fuel in there. <laughs> I had one hanging onto the bumper, but I don't know where it is. <laughs> he was one of the senior pilots. He's, we, the farm had given us lamb tongue, so there he is with his lamb tongue with his head on back to front. Now, here's, here's a South American that stood about this high. Yeah. Fine features, he was 27 years of age there, and he looked like he was about 15, and I was 18 and 19, and I'd hop out of the plane, and he'd purposely walk over to the load and grab a grease gun, and the farmer would come up to me and I'd say, no, he's the pilot and they look in the same <laughs> Can't be. Yes, he is. <laughs> a little, little, look like a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was the loader. That was quite complicated to get in because you operated from there and it, was, it, it didn't have proper power stairs, so the bucket used to be like this going in. <laughs> the snow was difficult to load. And when I, when I decided not to go flying, I decided to go engineering. Yeah. When I picked up my turbulent, I flew down the South Island um, and, and we um, caught up with the pilot. Okay. Did a bit of formation flying, went out to work. The BPC, I learned to fly, an old BPC. These are just around all the days. It was on the CD4C, extending the exhaust pipe. I just got to use a Jet Ranger one. That's the last of the Fletchers put down the line. Well, the, these were built from scratch with um, aerospace, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Whereas previously they'd been kit sets from no, um No, no, they weren't. Um, it was only the first few. Oh, okay. okay. That was what James, wasn't it? No, this is no aerospace down their main hangar. Oh, they hadn't built any for years, and when I went back there, I was running development, and then. Um, so I went back, because there was hardly anyone there that knew much about building them, yeah. I went back as an inspector on the line. It was quite funny because you knew all the tricks, <laughs> if you couldn't get something through. Okay. <laughs> yes. You knew where to look. Yeah. The, the difficult things people would shortcut. Yeah. That was on the um, testing, built the mounts, and that's the jigs for um, doing the um, PDC's Quesco, the first one. Oh, yeah. So there's all your um, for structural loading, CA, that's one of the girls. So that's what a side of a uh, fletch looks like under structural load. So because we had to do the um, <clears throat> exercise if you had a complete lock up, whether it would screw the engine mount off. Oh, okay. So we're talking about on your welds on that, holding... 750 horsepower plus um, two ton of super and that was the first one. Oh, there was one we did for Australia, we put a stinger out the back. It's And <coughs> that's the um, first CD4E. Um, okay. Structurally testing it. So in the old days you used to do it with sandbags, but sandbags, once it starts moving on you, it ch chases it the whole way, whereas loaded up with um, load cells, it, um, it doesn't. So that first uh, C4E, what happened to that? Did that end up going into service? or what? Um, Yeah, it was a demonstrator. They used it as a demonstrator. 
So we got this back from the Aussie Air Force. This is one of the. <clears throat> oh, that's right. It was converted, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, we got this quite cheap, but um, that one there was one of the um, ones that was meant to be going to. Um, oh, Africa. Um, uh, Rhodesia or something. Rhodesia. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the Rhodesian ones with the hard points on it. Yep. First day we got it back because the Aussie Air Force bought them. Yes. So this is what, when you're structurally testing, that there is full of iron bars about so big, big blocks of steel, mm -hmm. fully laden up there, and he's standing on top of the blocks of steel. Right. That's how much load we've got on that fuselage, and you see how rippled it is? Yeah, yeah. So that's where the wings move forward, so I made a jig up to move the um, wing fittings, and that's the jig there, so was able to change the rear ones first, we had a pickup point on the front, and then once we got the rear ones in the next position, then moved the front ones so that everything fitted exactly. So when you're structurally testing, this is an ultimate. This is, a, you can see the distortion in the, in the rubbers there. Yeah, yeah. So a CD4 under ultimate, when it comes in, you'll find the only thing you'll get is um, it deforms in the top of the firewall. Other than that, um, we did the negative G and it straightened it out and it flew with the original skin. Wow. Yeah, and it was too bladed when we first flew it, and that's a overnight paint job. We just put on it. Okay. Got the guys to scotch bright the whole thing and paint it overnight, <laughs> and that's as it flew. That's doing the. Um, it was welding up the Ellison um, engine mount. There's the Ellison going into it. And that was some of the problem with it because it didn't have a, there was no filters on the front. But um, <clears throat> that, um, when we did the cowl, I used a guy to come and help us with that by the name of Mark Elwood. He built a glass here and worked for Timaru. I knew him from working down there. So that there was built in, um, because we didn't have weight problems, that was built in a, um, um, that's it, that's, built it on, on the foam, and then cut it down and took it off, and that would become the cowl. Okay. It's a bit heavier than a normal cowl, but um, as a quick way, um, all we needed to do was proof, prove the concept. Now, this is the sea body, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the turbine. Now, what, what was the, um, the outcome of that? Because it didn't go into production, so... No, well, we realised... Grab a seat. Realised... I might have a hot drink might help. Anyone want a hot drink? It's okay, thanks. Uh, I'm a bright thank you. Yeah. Um, the Thai Air Force had, they had bought the, I forget what aircraft they'd bought, but they had the um, Ellison turbines in them and they decided they were underpowered, so they went to the bigger, I think the C30s, don't quote me. And they had all these um, B17 turbines sitting there. So the idea was to marry up their airframes with our right, turbines. With those turbines. But there was a coup in the meantime when we nearly finished it oh. and in Thailand, so that wasn't going to happen. Oh, so that's the only reason it sort of all came to a halt, is because of a change um, of government? No, there was, there was, we did the proof of concept, there was still, that was the main reason, but, um, Esther, we had the engine on loan, we had the airframe on loan, yeah. right? Esther said, 
um, got rid of the general manager <coughs> because the money, company was losing money and said no more development. Ah, right. So they actually killed the development of aerospace. Right. I went to the manager and said, we're two weeks off getting it going. And he says, well, we can go ahead on condition that you don't spend any more money on it. I said, no, we don't need to spend any more money on it. So the radio came out of my home built, the, half the instruments came out of my home built. Um, I got hold of the um, guy by the name of Kevin Griggs from Australia, he was the Allison um, uh, rep, rep over there, and he flew over and I explained the situation to him. So we said, we've, we've got to get it, we've got to get this thing flying. Um, and this is what the setup is. So, I, and the manager shouldn't have even done it, really. You know, Australia said no, stop. It's all over. These are a couple of jet ranger exhaust pipes I extended. The cows were done. We didn't need the cows because a turbine can run without cows. So our first engine run was out cows. We were waiting for the air force to send us all the parts to get the airframe going. That had that hadn't arrived. So. Um, used a chain and chained it to the um, tarmac because we had no brakes. Um, we were missing panels off the bottom of the floor, so we didn't have that. Um, we worked all weekend, this um, representative and myself worked all weekend and um, on it, and we said no matter what, we were, everything was just sitting like you're almost sitting on a box and, and nothing around us, yeah. and wheeled it out. And he says, you can do the first start, John, on it. So we sat in it, and um, the manager, and that they heard we were going to start it, so they sneaked out, and of course, um, did, a, did the first engine run. Well, you imagine what that was like, to hear a turbine going in a CD4. Yeah. The whole company got excited. They're all standing out, they're all excited about this. They're sitting in their eyes were watering. <laughs> eyes were watering, and you know, nothing was, everything was just sort of a bit makeshift. So, Anyway, while we're doing that, the guys are busily finishing off the cows and putting catches on it and putting angles on it. So um, they came back and um, said um, that, um, yep, because I'd done it in two months, 10 days, the whole project. And um, we're used to doing things fairly quick on the helicopters. So when I went back to aerospace, it was sort of cut the red tape and went for it. Yeah. Um, that had the engine for 13 months and hadn't had done anything about it, so Alice and I certainly take it back. But anyway, after that, the manager said, no, finish it. Okay. Fly it. So we did uh, 15 hours in it. Um, I got um, 50 minutes in around here with the test pilot, um, and that had to be pulled. But we did have things that needed to happen, which I believe wasn't really suitable because you got your intake on the Allison, it's just like dripped into the slipstream. Yeah. So if you went to one of the American conversions, they reverse the Allison around and put a gearbox in, slowly do, and that's how they get around it. Okay. So there was no protection. One washer, one, one washer, one little stone hits that turbine, um, the blades, and it's gone. Right. And it's low to the ground. Yeah. So that was one problem, and we would have benefited more from um, that wing movement too. The same as the other one.
So, yeah, I can see that. I, I remember actually seeing it displayed at the 1991 Hamilton Airshow. That's, that's great. Yeah, and I, that's great. I was at Hobbsville at the time in the Air Force, and I came down to the Airshow, and um, we had our CD4Bs there, the, mm. the checkers, and the the difference was completely marked. It was so, oh, yeah. so much faster, so much quieter. And, and at that stage, everybody was sort of going, well, we're going to get these, we're going to get these, let's start building them. And everyone in the Air Force thought we were going to get them. Well, this was online. Um, yeah. When I got to aerospace, there was a wreck and they'd started on it and they'd thrown half the parts on the rubbish tin. And I, when I got there, I dragged half the parts out of the rubbish tin because it was like, it gave me, I didn't have jigs to put the front end back on on that fuselage and it yeah. damaged it, taking it apart. one that force landed. So um, I had to do repairs on the front, but um, I had a way of <coughs> um, reverse engineering everything to make the parts to fit on it because they were handmade virtually every CD4. Yeah. So reverse engineered it. Down here, it had to go back to the Air Force, so just um, all of his masked up and put lacquer on there, so he just used thinners to get it off when he ah, sent it back to the Air Force. Right. So it was all back to its original colours. FXM, fast experimental machine. Brilliant. <laughs> so that, that was it there. Um, it, it honestly must be one of the most impressive uh, developments done in New Zealand that never went anywhere, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, and, and all I did was use Jet Ranger exhaust pipe. So I always remember I was got the um, helicopter line to send them down. They'd done 10, they'd done, um, they'd, they'd done hundreds of hours and there wasn't one crack in them and they arrived and of course um, the aerospace wasn't sure about putting them on. They'd be, where's the paper, where's all this? And I said, well, they've actually been on a machine and proven that they don't crack. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. In the end, I said oh, to the to the guy, I said, be more worried about the hoses laying there with those mason bees crawling in the end of those pipes and making this um, on a $250,000 engine. So he raced off to do that and I put my exhaust on. <laughs> he was happy. <laughs> he was more worried about the mason bees and the <laughs> new pipes. So that's some of the flying. That's some of the flying. I've got some quite a bit on that. Now the E... The E, the B had the rounded cowl on it, which I really never liked the look of it. And design officers are trying to work out how to make it work. So I raced across to Hamero and took a photograph of the Tobago cowl with the 540 in it, because the Tobago had a boxy fuselage. Mm -hmm. yep. And um, it, so the way to do it was to disguise it, put the cheeks on it. It had three Once again, that um, had three degrees um, offset. So I rang up Mark Elway, then he flew up from down south and, and he, um, um, off photographs, he shaped it from that. There we go, there's helicopters out here, he used to service, we used to um, service the helicopters out of here. Okay. There's the old dog sitting beside the pilot. Is <laughs> it? Oh, that's just a llama, went down the south island, got a llama, brought up, there's one of the old guys he used to work with. I was lucky to get a fly in Tim's Mustang when it first came to New Zealand. Oh, brilliant. Because I actually bought all the, um, when I worked for Tim, I bought all the Aspen stuff for him. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, all the Aspen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah How yeah. much was still there then? 
Um, well, the, not so much in the big building, but in the small. So Tim, Tim uh, rang him and said, look, you know, when he first got his Mustang, I said, I know where there's a lot of stuff near here. And he said, well, go and have a look, John, and tell us what's good. So I went down there and I said, rang him back and I said, you have to buy 75% of the shit to get what's good. Yeah. I said, a lot of people picked it over. And um, he said, oh, yeah. And, and I said, you got to buy the lot, Tim, you know. So he rang back and he said, I'll come and have a look, I'll come and have a look. So he's coming up here and he landed and, and we we're meant to go down there. And he said, look, I'm running late. I've got to go to a deer sale. Pulled out his checkbook and wrote me a blank check. And said, I'm sure you'll do well. Just ring me up and tell me how much. Wow. <laughs> I got it for scrap metal price. Oh, really? Actually, yeah. Oh, wow, that's great. Bought the whole lot. So they, 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 then I bought some containers to ship it down um, south from Tauranga. And um, when it arrived down there, like we had 44 gallon drums of AN fittings. Just when they melted them down, they took all the AN fittings off. 44 gallon drums wow. were in. Um, all sorts of stuff come out of there. Wow. And plus there was a lot of stuff at Matter Matter. And I stored in sheds over there. And there was stuff in Hamilton as well. All Aspen stuff? Yeah. Wow. Because okay. so Aspen was sold to someone else, yep. and this guy was trying to get rid of it all. Yeah, because he realised he just couldn't get rid of it to the public. So I guess most of that would have been Kitty Hawk course there. Yeah, uh, yeah. well they, they, they called it Hanson's sh um, they, um, container load of shit. They were not arrived down there because they had materials, raw ma one container had raw materials, brand new, you know, could have been used. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be the oddball sizes, but... When they um, come to do the Kitty Hawk, they needed the wing bolts for them and they were going to have to get them specially made because there was none around. Yeah. And someone said, have a look in Hanson's. Um, they found them still in the wax paper, you wow. know, the greased up. Because there was new stuff, like off um, bombers and things like that, there was the radiators, yep. you know, the honeycomb ones, yeah, brand yeah. new, still in the box, sealed. Had to get a knife and lift the lid and find out what was in there. Just amazing. So but obviously, um, Aspen's as scrap dealers must have bought all that stuff direct off the supplier's shelf in the Air Force, the stuff that hadn't been used. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, it's amazing. I wonder if, where is it all now? Is it all still down? At well, a lot of it went there, but see, we had a lot of stuff like was swapped off as well. Yeah. Um, I know they said that they made, I think they had a um, Mustang tailplane. Excuse me. And according to Ray Queen, they made their money back on their first object, the first bit they sold. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. That'd be worth a hell of a lot more now, too, because that would have been 1985, wouldn't it? Those are the days when I used to demonstrate <coughs> the gear for Miller Welders. Okay. So I used to take the aircraft stuff and just. These are some of just the home built stuff over the years. Yep. Bits and pieces. Mustang. Yeah, so when Tim Wallace, I got to fly in, when, when he first got the Mustang, Tim, um, I was told to um, turn up at uh, Hamilton Airport. The manager rang me and said, it's Sunday. He said, turn up at the airport. You'd see Tim's plane go past and plane landed, you see, and I'd done all this work for Tim, sorting out a lot of stuff. And um, right, um Trevor Bland hopped out and on the wing and said, is there someone by the name of John Hanson here? And I said, yep. And he says, Tim says you've got to go for a fly. <laughs> so I've got the full display and sitting in the 
That's excellent. Let's see, um, turbine, put in. That was on your test line. All the John Muir, test pilot, um, chief um, designer. I don't mean to bore you. Not at all, no, no, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole new subject. Um, that was the one, uh, EUN, that's the one there, that's um, the E, and that was DGY, I got that back, and <coughs> I think I worked 10 hour days for, how many days? This is over a month. Okay. Every day. 10 hour days to get that. So I just grabbed all the, I grabbed a new engine off the assembly line, grabbed the new undercarriage off the assembly line, painted it all up and brought it up to the latest spec and put a um, instrument panel off the assembly line. Uh, and that's when it went to the States? Yeah. Right. And this one... The, it was political. The, the, the E um, demonstrator, um, what's happened to that? Now, is that the one that they... I don't know where it is at the moment, but they used it as a. I think they sent it to Israel at one stage, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they made it into the F as well, which was. Yeah, so that's the last one. Yeah. That's the V8 one, did the structural testing over there um, for um, Super Air. Um, there's a set of mounts, that'll be Super Air ones. There's a crease when you're structurally testing it. Oh, yeah. On Super Air One. Yep. Oh, that was one of the one of the looks they were playing around with when I received arrived on the scene. Okay. With the CD4 turbine, they had got around to making a pipe engine mount and mocking it up, but they hadn't got any further than that. Right. We did it in two months, ten days from the day I arrived. Right. That's impressive. So, um, just getting back to the home build side of things. And you, you, you were talking about the early days uh, at uh, Takoi with um, Max and, and all that. Did you sort of um, fly out of there most of the time? Yeah. Uh, uh, up until the point you got your strip here? Yep. Uh, when did you get your strip? Um, in the 80s, beginning oh, of the 80s. Oh, right. So you've been here for a while, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so do we, Max swung more to the microlights. For the home builds, yeah. and um, so when Max sort of went the micro light way, and it's and and we had parachutists there, and you'd go to the hang, and the hangar door would be open, and there would be kids sitting in the aeroplane, and parachutes hanging over your wings, and that, and you thought, no, one day I thought, no, I'm out of there. So I flew out of there, and I flew it to another strip while I built this strip. Right, thank you. Um, you told me when we were at Raglan that time um, at Black Sands about some of the um, interesting um, things that you and Max used to do with aerobatics and all sorts of things. Oh. Can you tell some of those stories? Or? Oh, with, with, Max, with Max and that. Yeah. Um, better be careful what I say here, what <laughs> we did with Turbulent. Um, we, we used to, the early days with Turbulent, we used to... Um, we used to have a lot of fun with the turbulence and, and I think they were the happiest days for Max too, yeah. um, when it was all simple. Yeah. And uh, you know, you go you go to taxi your turbulent out and you give it full you you give it full throttle and it'd be going nowhere and you'd find that Max was laying on the ground hanging onto your tail skin. 
you know. <laughs> or you'd, you'd start your turbulent and you'd be sitting there with it running. You've got no brakes on a turbulent, you're just sitting in a turbulent and all of a sudden you've got that terrible feeling that it's, you know, it's our biggest fear with um, a turbulent tipping over on its nose or something like that because it's so light in the back. And you had that terrible feeling of the plane suddenly tipping up onto its nose and it'd be him lifting it up at the back and running along the ground like a wheelbarrow and you're sitting in it completely helpless. <laughs> so we we had things like that. So on a regular basis we used to, um, I think just about every strip around the Waikato got landed on, I think about every maize paddock um, um, got sprayed with fresh air um, up and down the maize paddocks in those days. and. Uh, we had lots of fun and spent a lot of time out on the beach with our turbulence and that and spent a lot of time um, flying um, around to um, uh, fly-ins. I remember the Kai Kaui fly-in coming back and flying down Murai Beach and um, there was um, a couple of cars chasing each other down the beach so we just fl flew just low over the top of the cars and of course um, next thing there's people waving out the windows to us, they had fishing rods on, so we stopped a bit further down the way and they stopped and um, pulled out a couple of um, picnic blankets and we spent a couple of hours having a picnic with them. So, and then hopped in our planes and they took pictures of their wives and family all in the plane and what have you and then we flew home. So we had many a day with things like that, that was before you know anyone really worried about us. We, um, I can remember things like um, flying down to the South Island when I was at aerospace uh, the, the whole plant too stopped to come out at lunchtime to watch me set off to the South Island. It was a grey miserable winter's maize day and I was heading off with this 1200cc VW down to the South Island and it was, um, I used to run it for a dollar an hour. So it was 34 cents a gallon and that burnt just over two gallons an hour. So, yeah, I remember them running out of uh, Wanganui, uh, fly spraying, laughing like anything, you know, and then the guy put fuel in it and he said, well, we drain more out of the Fletchers than what we've just put in the aeroplane, so it's not worth putting in the, not worth writing down. Wow. So my first trip down to the South Island was $5 out of my pocket. Wow. So, and that was, that was, that was flying down, so that was um, cheap flying. So we flew everywhere in them, you know, the turbulence, we flew everywhere. But um, our beach landings were always, we used to have an old copper at Takoai, so we'd put a bucket of water on it in the afternoon and, and light the fire in the copper and then fly over and land on the beach and then get our uh, mussels um, north of Raglan because there was no houses around there or no one around there at that stage, so you always got good mussels fly back and, and drop them in the copper when we arrived back, put our planes away and um, see on a uh, feed of fresh mussels. Right. So, you know, we, we had lots of fun and we would normally, if we're going to a fly-in, we would all fly together, all look after one another. Yeah. If someone had an engine problem, you would, everyone would stop back and, and make sure they were okay. And People used to laugh at the home builders in those days, so it used to be you know, the, um, what would I say, the poor cousins, but when you actually go flying past a pipe of cabin, a turbulent, and you're cruising faster than what he is, yeah. 
and um, they soon stop laughing. <laughs> they suddenly realise, you know, it's um, cheap flying. How many people would have been involved in those days in the seventies? And that um, was it quite a small group. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, we were all just about standing here, and that was about it. Because oh, right. most of them building because they'd just they'd just gone from single seaters to being able to build two seaters. So, so I think you're up when I was around, I think it was about, from memory, about seven or eight hundred, seven or eight hundred pound, I think, you're allowed, and then it went up to twelve hundred. Well, see, now microlights have got more freedom than what we had in those days. Everything was done with stage inspectors. Um, very close-knit group in the fact that if they were building, there'd be five people building together and someone will look after doing the wheels. The guy that built my one, um, he did the engine conversions, the GMW Gordon Waldy um, engine conversions. So he would do a run of them, run of five or whatever. So they they were always on the phone, always sharing information. So they were quite, a, um, you know, closed little group. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that could have, that strikes me is you were still fairly young when you got into it. Yes. And uh, I think. It used to be more of an old man's kind of thing to uh, to do the home building, wasn't it? So um, in America, it was because we used to laugh, but they all had grey hair. The guys when they come over for the um, down under tours, and on the down under tours, and used to always they used to get a trip out to the beach and, and a two seater or something, and then flying back to Dakota, and we always put on a good feed for them, and they used to love coming down on these down under tours. We had um, Bert Ruhern came down, Paul Poverenzi used to come down on a regular basis, um, Steve Whitman, the, you know, some quite um, famous guys yeah. made it down uh, this way, and they couldn't get over our flying. Um, I remember... Um, uh, the, the Americans, when they came down, they just couldn't get over the fact that we were operating off such um, small um, airstrips. Right, right. And Bert and he came down and someone came up to him and said, oh, here's a picture of the aeroplane I'm building. And he says, why are you building one of those for? Because the guy was quite proud about it. And he says, it is the wrong aeroplane for New Zealand. He said, you, they were designed for um, large American sealed airfields, oh. not New Zealand. He says, I'll design one one day that would be suitable for New Zealand, which he never has done, but yeah. um, that was rather interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, we were mentioning about the, the age. Was, were there a lot of younger people involved in? Um, no, there wasn't that many. I suppose, I suppose, well, Max Clare was in his 30s, I suppose. Yeah. And I was in my early 20s, in my 20s and um, I really got going on it. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's sort of a mixed, mixed lot, you know, like Gary Williams came along and he started, he started, um, you know, building, he was building his jodel, which um, took him a while. So, no, we had, we had lots of fun. And the other thing we used to do is we used to, um, Flying out from the beach on a Sunday afternoon, we'd circle over Raglan, and there used to be a guy that owned the garage there that was starting to build a home built, used to turn up with, um, be standing at the fence with two ice creams in his hand every time you'd land. So we'd land and he'd have a couple of ice creams there for us because he always wanted to see us guys come in with the home builds. That's brilliant. <laughs>
Did you ever finish your um, BD5? No. Uh, what happened with the BD5 is I twigged that there was a problem with it and we were going down to the Hastings flying and I decided to, um, went to Aerospace and said, um, I've paid the deposit on it, can you on sell it? And they said, yes, we've got people waiting for them. So they on sold my kit um, and of course there was a couple of guys from Aerospace who actually had the BD-5 on a trailer and they had um, got down as far as Taupo and I was with um, Bruce Stratton from Composites, you know Bruce, yeah. and we were going down to the Hastings fly-in and these, we stopped at the same restaurant as these guys for a feed that night and they were giving me such a hard time about getting rid of the, you'll regret it and you know, you wish you hadn't done it and you got it cheap at the beginning and that, well, I was the only one that got my money out of it and I did the best thing, I was up and flying with them, you know, as, as Max said to me, you can't buy the materials for a tournament for $1,200, everyone wants two seaters now. Yeah. You'll have fun in the turbulent, cheap to run. Wow. So one thing I'm not clear about with the BD5 is you said that it was free to do the um, the development here, uh, but not in the States. Uh, well, that's with civil aviation. Civil aviation never used to charge for anything. There was no landing fees. There was no inspection fees for when they come and um, certify the aircraft. There was no fees involved with it. It was all on the government in the early days. Okay, I didn't know that, but with the BD5, was it still under development when... Yes. When yes. The, the contract. Yes. So, so the one the kit's been built here. Were they also going overseas once they were built? Or? Um, they were contracted to do one for structural um, testing, and one was going to fly. So what Jim Beatty had done is he the first Beatty five that you saw in a magazine had a V tail on it, and um, it showed you a picture. Beatty five finally flies. As one guy wrote an article just shortly after, he said yes. He showed you the BD-5 fly, but he didn't show that 20 feet after that we were peeled over and went in, so they changed the tail design on it. They put bigger wings on it, right? Um, and they hadn't sorted the engine on it. They had a hearth engine, and that hadn't even been... The company went broke, and, and from what... Um, don't quote me on it, but I think from what I understand, they went broke because they had all sorts of um, teething problems with the kits. So he sold, he, he built the airframe kit, and the idea was that it, all the deposits came in would pay for the, help pay for the development for the engine kit. Ah, okay. And so the writing was on the wall. You know, once I saw the writing was on the wall, um, well, in my eyes it was. I was, I was I, the more I looked at it, I said, no, yeah. it's not what I want. It's not suitable for New Zealand. Yeah. I don't mean running around with little wheels on it and, and have an engine failure over the Waikato, there's nowhere to go. Oh, that's true. Yeah, because the tiny wheels on them, right? Yeah, and of course their roundout speed was, I think their roundout speed was about 90. Oh, really? Yeah, so quite. Jeez. Yeah. Okay, wow. That's really interesting because I, I had known about the connection with them being in Hamilton and uh, at mm. Aerospace, but I didn't really know much about it, so. Yeah, well, one of the guys got um, bought the three of the kits that Aerospace had, and then he's just passed on all the paperwork that he's got there. I've got some of the original letters here, okay. that between BD and that, I'm just going through a lot of stuff now, because sure. I'm going to document it all, because I maintain that what should happen is our history, we will regret it one day that our history hasn't been saved. Oh, definitely. You know, 
um, history's been saved and every other, um, you know, um, like the top dressing, um, yep. things like that, but it hasn't been saved in the home build. It's a lot of jigs, a lot of stuff's been thrown out. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's what, uh, you know, I know uh, um, Russell Brody quite well. And, yes. You know, he, he does his best to grab everything he can because he knows that no one else is doing that. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, did the BD5, uh, was there any sort of difference after it had been in James Bond with the jet version? Did, did oh, no, it, it, died, it died a natural death. And, and a lot of people ended up with kits. I remember once seeing all the things that had been done with the kits. Um, I'd even seen them as sidecars on motorbikes. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one of the best things I saw was the BD5 bigger push engine or is it a and it had twin booms coming out and a tail plane oh, okay. yeah and one of those oh. in fact when I was at Oskosh and I think it was 2000 I saw they were building a bigger version of the BD5 but it's never ever got home right you know though you, you imagine you jammed up that nose there and there's all the instruments were so small and they were so tightly packed in that little little um, aeroplane is yeah. It also strikes me as flimsy, yeah, it's like not very robust. That's, that's no. what strikes me. And, and, and building it also, all those big press skins on the outside, if you misdraw one of those, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> Start again. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one thing we haven't covered yet is about your time in France. Did you want to talk about... Yeah. Um, what was it? must have been about 2003 when I was... Because I was contracting on the helicopters and all over the place. and. Because um, my experience in manufacturing, I got approached about um, um, getting involved with the um, Alpha. Because yep. um, Isaac had brought some in. So, um, as Hanson Aviation, I sort of, it was just like a little, little thing I did on the side. So, we went to France in 2003 and looked at the um, the Alpha and very simple aeroplane to build. Like you got 13 skins on a um, Air Tourer or CD4. You got three skins on an Alpha wow. because 12 foot wings and you got a you know at um, 32 foot leading edge, simple to build. Um, there was a lot going for it, and um, so the idea was. Um, that um, we'd take a long look at it. So we looked at it over a period of time and then um, we decided to make a move and um, we set up. So they, they put some seed money into the company and we set up over at Hamero. Izard was involved, I was involved, um, Murray Dreyer came on, general manager and I worked as engineering manager on it. And we were to price Price it up, which we we priced up manufacturing. You know, to the, we virtually had books, whatever we could do, and at the same time, um, Mooney was interested in, in, in it as well. But we'd sort of got in, and, and we got the um, first right of refusal for the Alpha. So without going, I won't go into too much detail on it because there's a lot of politics and bits and pieces, but. Um, we brought outsiders in, we had money there to set up and get the thing going 
and um, golden opportunity. I've been through manufacturing, and I knew every aspect of it, right through um, every part of it. Um, I knew the problems that we had. I've seen many managers go through, make the same mistake. They all seem to make the same mistake, um, at, like at aerospace. So the biggest thing is your lead times getting in, um, and the idea was that every time aerospace made changes on the Fletcher or CD4, they they turned around and it become complicated on the drawings. Yep. Um, getting back to the drawings, the idea I had with the design in the end, um, we would work together, make it work, and then the drawings would be signed off. In the early days, the drawings were signed off, we had to make it, and then all the fixes had to be um, um, documented on the drawings. So every time you picked up a drawing, you had to go through 17 yeah. drawing changes, right. yeah. which slowed you down. Yeah. So my thoughts were on it, and... Um, mainly, you know, my thoughts from the engineering side of point of view, that we make the Alpha like a Henry Ford made the Model T. You can have any colour you like as long as it's white. That they come out because um, there's so many different things you can have on them. So the idea was that you would build an aircraft, um, there's a good market out for an aerobatic aircraft for training of pilots, and you would make every aeroplane the same right from the word go and they, that way um, I was quite keen on getting home builders involved because they, um, you don't necessarily need um, engineers for building building them so you get a team together and you build your first one and then you build your maybe your second one and, and building the first one we would actually virtually tear we had one we could tear to bits and, and reverse engineering against the drawings because they had that many drawings you would know which drawings they were using how correct they were whether building was it's like PAC on steroids over in France you know it's all in their head <laughs> half of it so it would be just sorted out with a team of say six guys over 12 months and that's as we would build the alpha so I went, and, and, and the biggest thing is tooling, all that sort of thing. So I went um, over there, the first time I went over there, um, there was a team of us, three of us that went over there, and we found that terrible trying to deal with the French because the French would sit in this office and, and, and they'd, you'd have a meeting at, say, 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, and about 11 o'clock they were looking straight at them, but they, they just, in other words, we're in charge here. We'll have it when I'm ready. Very difficult in that way. A lot I like about the French, but there's some things I don't like. Um, so they decided that I'd go across there, and the next time I went across a year later, I went, what was it, 2004, went across four months and to build the very last one. Okay. So arrived there, and of course the French... The computer screen had no access to internet. Um, half the drawings were on it, half the drawings were hidden because they also had um, another company looking at the buying the rights and they were maybe going to offer more, I don't know. They went, We didn't know what was going on, but we had first right of refusal. So I had to do my costing on it. So um, what I did is I employed a young Frenchman before I went over and I said, if you can find your way from, um, you just come out of university, 
engineering degree. He spent six months in England, speaking a bit of English. So I said, if you can find a, get a rental car and um, go drive to Dijon, get me a hotel and drive to Charles de Gaulle and pick me up and get me back, I'll give you a job. So that there, to me, that proved that um, he had enough gumption to do that. Um, he didn't know much about aircraft, he knew a bit about, you know, like Airbus building a certain part of it or, or whatever. Yeah. So, um, very bright young guy. So, we sat there the first day, no phone, no computer, um, virtually alienated, and I was only allowed down for one hour down onto the floor. And, and, and that was it, the French, you know, and we were 200 metres away from the, um, where the guys were working. And um, so in the end, I said to the young guy, I said, right, we'll start off to start off what I'll get you to do. I've got a completely new way, I, I believe, in building aircraft, which I think is the way to do it. Now that there's computers, I know what I want, but I don't know too much about using computers. I'm only just starting to learn now. What I want is I want you to do a list of part numbers of all the parts that we need. The next column I want down there is the tooling. Um, against that part numbers, it might be trimming, drilling, machining, folding, painting, whatever it is. And each one I want you to put the number of the tool. So you list all the parts. And I want the number of the tool to do the job. Yep. So when you actually double click on the number of the tool, it actually flicks up on a photograph of the tool. Right. So the guy on the assembly line has got a visual reference to building it. So therefore, instead of having drawings that you having to search all the time, you'll have drawings, but alongside you'll have visual aids, which will be along the assembly line that you can actually go up and you can click on something and you know you tie a tie wrap a certain way and it has three tie wraps on. It's not going out different with every guy and then you find out inspector picks it up and saying there's not enough tie wraps on. It's just a time saving. So we set up that system and then every tool we found that they didn't know, um, every tool we found somewhere that wasn't on the list that they gave us um, at night time we go home and work till about 11 o'clock at night and I set up a computer and um, printer and everything at the other end, documented it all. So went right to the last day with all this stuff that they thought we didn't know. <laughs> I went down onto the assembly line and, and of course the French only, only talk French and they, and they don't see people from other countries. We don't, they don't learn from the Americans. They're quite backward. They had never seen a side loading. Um, when, I, when I actually went to ship everything out, they'd never seen a side loading container lifter. Never. So I went down and I would say to the guys, I wouldn't tell them how to do the job. I'd say, in New Zealand, this is what we do. And, and you see the guys, hey, next thing you go past and they're doing it a different way. You know, obviously, they, um, but I was there with Michael one day and one of the stories and um, <clears throat> I said I wonder what the materials like to weld so he explained to them that I wanted to weld some of their material and they says come back tomorrow so I went back that had a stacker 4130 well it wasn't 4130 the equivalent um, some alley and some stainless and the welding machine there you see so um, 
I said I was too busy, couldn't stop. Next day I was on my own, I was too busy, I can't stop. And they had it sitting there in this world machine. So next day I said, Michael wasn't with me, so I had no one to translate. So I go like this and they say, oh, switch like this and helmet like this and rod like this and put me in there and thought I wanted to learn how to weld. <laughs> so I could weld up these aeroplanes when I got back to New Zealand. So I walk in there and they left me to it and I flicked the welder on, I welded up one alley, one 40, well, equivalent to 41.30 and one stainless and left it on the bench. Next day I go down and one of the, the engineering, because um, it's about 80 staff, and the floor manager comes up to me and say, you, you engineering men, are not money men. <laughs> and I says, because I was you know, dressed up in there, and they, they yeah, yeah. one of the, you're, you're not the money men. And um, I says, no. And um, he says, uh, yeah. So where did you start? Because you know, if you go to university over there, you, you go to straight to a top job, you don't have to come up through the ranks, nothing. I said, I start down there and I end up there. Okay. You know, so he says, oh, we like you, we, we will help you. <laughs> the guys I would always look and say, oh, let's do good riveting and here's an easy way and you can do this or this is what we've got in New Zealand. So even to this day, I have a good relationship with the, um, the French Great. guys I work with. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's basically, um, and then, because the French think a different way than us, a lot different, you know, like um, they said, we, we have ordered um, seven containers to take your stuff across. And I says, no, no, that's two, we can get it all in one. They said, oh no, but you, you, um, you need plenty of containers. It takes two months to order containers to when you get them. So I said, okay then. Um, and they said, you need them ready for the day. I said, right, have you finished with the tooling? Every time you finish with the tooling, have you got a spare hanger? They said, yeah, and there's a spare hanger there, you know. And they said, right. I went out with masking tape and made a size of a 40-foot container on there. And I said, every time you finish with a tool, drop it in there. And they said, but you need to build boxes. And I said, no, 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 no. You've got big wing jigs, you've got everything. You can sit these big wing jigs in and we can use cardboard boxes <coughs> and stack them in tight, which that's what we did. Yeah. Um, ended up with about three, two or three containers, I think, less than half. And in the end, I got rid of them and, and used a Dutch company because um, they said that we, we don't, we have to load the container while the truck driver sits in the truck oh, okay. on loading banks. And at 80 euros an hour, oh. 1200 euros to bring a forklift out from town to lift a container off. So I got a Dutch company and I said, I'll put a proposal, you bring your Arctic in, drop your con um, the deck off and with the container and you shoot off and do something else. And um, we're not going to pay a Frenchman 80 euros an hour to drink coffee all day. And, uh, and then the next day he came back and dropped another one off and took that one away to the ports. And we did it like that. Right, right. Huh. But I know it, it, um, it had a great time, enjoyed it over there, and um, you know, did a, went on a few deliveries of aircraft and did a little alphas. Yep. Met Pierre Robin. And of course, they used to make the Cap 10s in the same factory, so I always used to go through the woodworking bay. Um, 
Oh, and of course, they're making the good old Jodel spar. Oh, right. You know, Jodel type spar. Yeah. So, <coughs> what I wanted to do was start at Collins, Collins Road. At you know, Collins Road, where the old um, caravan factory used to be. Um, the caravan factory there was empty because I just sold the everything and so what I want to do is they couldn't we could have got that cheap because they can't let it out because it hasn't got very high roofs on it and that was to build the assembly lines down there closer to get people to work in there train guys up and build up very slowly and do the production there and then put open side trucks for jigs to pick up the fuselages or wings um, there's less distractions um, the best output they ever put of Fletcher's when they had um, was um, when they were doing them out, um, was it Rivoli Road? Rivoli Road? I think it was Rivoli Road when we were building their wings and fuselages out there. It was the best production we ever had in Fletch. Okay. What, milkers? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yep. Right. Yeah, we've had the best, because they had a small team of 10 guys and they could just work in a little pocket, self-contained. When you get into aerospace, it's just a huge conglomeration. There's meetings to go to and people interrupting you and you've got to go and get material over there and you can't, whereas we got kit sets. Um, I only did a fortnight out there when we ran out of work on the assembly line to speed things up. Yeah. But um, that was successful. Mm. Yeah. So the idea was that, but it just all got out of control after that. So the hours I'd worked out on and, 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 the, and the hours that they had um, was just hopeless. Right. Lost interest after that. So I came back and contract to build all the engine mounts and canopies for them here. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and they, they, they know more, are they? The old, um, no, Alpha. no, no. As I, as I rang up the main director and I said to him, well, I said, I feel like I'm sitting in the back seat of a car with some idiots at the front and I said, there's a cliff around the corner and they don't know it. And I says, you'll, you'll go broke, you'll go broke. And um, I said, I've been down that road before at aerospace. I said, I got out of aerospace in the late 70s before it went under because the place got out of control. So it should have been a simple little aeroplane, but what happened is they, the more people they put on, the more they had to produce to pay the overheads. Oh, of course. So we only ever wanted to build them 12 people, 12 to 20 people, and um, build your first one, and um, iron out any of the problems and then start employing. Well, they employed before they'd even started building. And just the payroll, we imagine what it's like. So when you put out an aircraft, they've got to go down the line, they've all got to be the same, and if you want to put a different radio kit in, it goes to Hamiro. Yep. Separate loom, lift the panels off, put it in. Every time a, something stops going down an assembly line, there's five people, rubberneckers, all standing there with ideas, the best way to fix it, and that just blows your hours through the roof. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much, John. It's been fascinating. Yeah. yeah, we don't realise it. It's life drifts on, and you do all these things, and it isn't until you. It's like the young guys. I said to the one of the young guys that was on development with, with us, and I said, "You only ever get one chance at being on development, right? Yeah. Um, enjoy it, and remember that one day you'll look back on that you made history." And uh, he works for New Zealand now, and he came to me one day, he said, do you know what, he says, you were right what you said to me. He says, 
we made history back then, it hasn't happened again since. And I said, no, well, there's, it happens like when they bought the first Fletchers out, when they developed the first CD4, all those sort of things were things that happened, but it's not happening now like it used to. No, no, you're right. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you were really in the heyday of New Zealand aviation production, weren't you? Well, I was lucky that I got in, I was on the heyday of the um, top dressing, didn't fly. Yeah. Someone quoted me a while back as flying. That's why I got to be very careful what I say because I didn't. I didn't fly. Oh, I got a few bit of flying out of the machines when there, you know, just to and fro. But didn't fly. Decided not to go flying engineering, and I enjoyed the engineering because flying's good to keep as a hobby. As one ag pilot said to me, the first year you wonder why you get paid. The second year you think, well, I'm underpaid for um, putting my neck on the line every day and such a dangerous job. Yeah. And the third year, you, you, he says, you, you're starting to get bored because all you're doing is flying up and down, up and down the paddock, same as driving up and down, up and down. And he said, then after that, if I lose my licence for 20,000 hours, what's the use of having 20,000 hours and you can't fly? Yeah, true. So then you've got to get out in the world and find yourself a job. So at least with engineering, you've always got something to fall back on. And I always find it stimulating. Maintenance isn't so stimulating, one and it's it's, yeah. it's looking at the same filter every time, and every now and again you find some metal in it, and you change of heart, and um, you know working out in the back of a Hughes five hundred is not much fun. Tucked up in there. Whereas um, making something, you can look at it afterwards. You'll know that, won't you? You look at it afterwards and go. Yeah, I remember turning up at Timaru flying, and I used to have, in those days, a long, long hair down to about there from my early 20s, and an old army shirt and, and bare feet. I used to fly bare feet with the old flat pedals in the turbulent, and you imagine what it's like after flying all the way from Hamilton and riding down Timaru. And I hopped out, and I had my, for a joke, I used to do it, I had a toothbrush tucked in, up in the pen holder. And, and a guy in the crowd that was in the middle of the air show, and the guy in the crowd said, You've just ruined my image of a pilot that normally walks around with peak cap and sunglasses. Here you are, you hop out with long hair, flying helmet and a toothbrush in your pocket. (laughs) (laughs) So, in some ways you're better off to get into a... A lot of people, they come and say to me, we want to build a plane. So what do you want to build? And they say, well, I want to build something really fast. And I'm saying, well... Um, what do you want to do with your plane? And they say, oh, well, I want something that's fun. Well, hang on. Um, 90% of your flying is going to be within a 100-mile radius. And I always remember a classic one um, way back was there was Keith Trillo. You know Keith Trillo? Keith Trillo, Max Clear, both had just got their pit special. And we always used to fly everywhere, Max and I, over there too. But it was the first year we had his pits, and we were going to Nelson to fly in. And Max said, Tell you what, you better get going with Tokoa. You better get going, John. He says, Because um, we'll stop off. We, we haven't got the range. We're going to all stop off at Wanganui. I'm going to have a fuel up and have a cup of coffee. So we'll wait for you. We'll wait for you at Wanganui. And um, so you better head off. So he swung the old prop and, and I, I taxied down to the end of the runway and Keith Trillows was already going, Max had started that and was just starting his plane. And I got airborne 
and I got out by Kripner's there, and I heard um, Keith Fellow rolling off the end of the runway. Flew down there, never saw them. Never for me, never saw them. I didn't bother throttle bashing. I just cruised along, enjoyed myself in the turbulent, and I'm just joining over Wanganui, and there's two pits taxiing over towards the pumps. Wow. Two pits over to the pumps. Yeah. So, and I just flew around and just straight in, and I'd landed by the time they switched the engines off, I'd landed, so they didn't hear me come in. They didn't see me. They were looking where they were going, yeah. at the pumps, and I come taxiing in behind them. <laughs> Couldn't. Keith Trillo sat there and he said he couldn't believe it. He said, but you took off the same time as us, because to him it seemed like the same time, but I'd just got down to, you know, it would be... Uh, so over an hour and a half, um, 20 mile an hour, say 20 mile an hour, past I'd like saying, or, um, you know, that's just not saying that's the speed, but say you had 20 mile an hour on, yeah. um, that's seeing distance in an hour, isn't it? Yeah. Nothing in it. So I always say there's a cup of coffee and a fast, fast machine and a slow machine. That's all there is. Well, see, their their landing would have been the great big overhead overhead rejoin, the extended down leg, and the big long approach where the turbulent was just. And and, and on a pitch, you have to slip it in anyway. Yeah, it's a a tricky thing, so you have to get it in your room. Yeah. Well, thank you very much again, John. It's bloody good. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.